Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, working to support students, educators, and public schools as the center of their communities through the Public Schools Unite Us initiative. New York State Office of Cannabis Management approved a measure this week to allow cannabis to be sold at fairs, festivals, concerts, and other related events. The Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt with the latest. Resolution number 2023-25 carries. Thank you. The vote by the state's Cannabis Control Board helped solve a problem caused when state regulators got behind schedule and plans to open retail stores. Over 460 retail licenses have now been approved. That's after the board voted to allow 212 more licenses. But so far, just 20 stores have opened. That's left around 200 farmers who got licenses last year to grow cannabis stranded with virtually no legal outlets to sell their crops. We've certainly seen a lot of interest uh, over the last few weeks. The Office of Cannabis Management, or OCM's Director of Policy, John Kagia, told the board that the resolution will enact a grower's showcase. It will allow the sale of the farmers' products at the festivals, fairs, concerts, and other venues. The cannabis grower showcases, we believe, are going to be a win for our consumers who will finally get access to legal regulated product across the state. Um, a win for our farmers um, who have a significant amount of inventory that we want to help sell through. Uh, and a win for our retailers who can begin to seed the sales opportunities in the communities where they're ultimately going to be operating. Kagia says the pop-ups will also help farmers directly connect with customers. The cannabis stands will first need approval from the local government where they'll be selling, and they can't be held in municipalities that have voted not to allow cannabis retail dispensaries. The rules also require a licensed retailer to work with up to three growers to sell at the outdoor events. The proposal was first introduced in May when Kagia said he had been given the go-ahead from a high level of authority to pursue the program. But it languished for the next several weeks, with an OCM spokesperson issuing a non-committal statement on July 5th about whether the program would go forward. Only one board member, Dr. Jennifer Gilbert Jenkins, professor of agriculture at SUNY Morrisville, raised some objections. Gilbert Jenkins, who's a consultant to hemp and cannabis farmers, asked for more guarantees that the growers will fully benefit from the events. She wanted sales to be limited to cannabis flour produced by the growers rather than edibles, which contain THC but are processed by others. This opportunity to add value-added products in there is a very slippery slope and um, it is incredibly important to me that these are not just pop-up dispensaries. She eventually voted yes after Kagia and others agreed to immediately begin discussion on the details of the program and to add more safeguards for farmers. OCM plans to hold town halls over the coming weeks to go over details with growers and retailers. They say they are hopeful that the cannabis sales at the events could begin as soon as the end of the summer. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt.
You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. New York and New England have been pounded by heavy rains and flooding that caused millions of dollars in damage and has cost at least three lives. In addition, smoke from Canadian wildfires and rising heat have put climate change at the forefront of mainstream thinking. That's exactly what I spoke about this week with Vanessa Fagens-Turner, the new executive director of Environmental Advocates New York. Well, I imagine that listeners must think I'm crazy to take on a mission like this, given everything that's going on. My first day, incidentally, with Environmental Advocates, which was just last week, uh, was following the unprecedented flooding here in the Albany area. I was taking the train which was canceled coming into the city. And that was indicative, perhaps, of the mission, which is to take Albany by storm. Hmm. We have a lot of work to do. But the work has never been more important, nor has it ever been more at the top of not only our lawmakers' agendas, but our voters' agendas. Environmental issues have topped and won at the ballot box time and time again over the last five years. And it is demonstrating to lawmakers that voters want action now and that to be responsive, it's in their best interest to act for a more sustainable planet. Where we're going to get into some negotiation is the devil's in the details. Certainly. We spoke about this just before coming on, but I want to pick up on the idea that your organization name is Environmental Advocates. And as you were pointing out, more and more now we're seeing lawmakers, politicians, the general public realizing that we all need to become environmental advocates. So the issue, you know, perhaps being forced into it at this point is becoming way more mainstream, hasn't it? Absolutely. The climate and environmental issues have been Uh, for many, the domain of a certain subset of, of, uh, of interests. And right now, the notion of extreme weather, which is experienced around the globe, the notion of rising prices from agricultural shifts in season and drought and other phenomena that impact our food systems, uh, floods which affect shipping, All of these affect not only our households and our insurance rates and everything, but also the price of our goods and companies' uh, supply chains and bottom lines. And once it's so pervasive, there is an upwelling of support to recognize that what we need to do is try to mitigate climate change, which is driving all of this. Now, the thing to marry is... Is that where we are at this point, mitigation? Can we reverse it, do you think? Will we ever get to that point? Oh, there is a lot we can do to mitigate climate change, and there's a lot we can do to reverse the impacts that we have locked in to date. And I use that phrase on purpose. By failing to take action with each day, with each incremental emission we don't reduce or take out of the atmosphere, we are locking in certain trajectories for our climate, for our country, for our state. But there are any number of, of things we can do to unlock those trajectories if we take sufficient action. But I want listeners to understand 
that the critical thing to do now is to stop locking in further damage before we even try to take and undo certain damage because we know enough to know what we can't be doing in order to make our situation better. And that's doubling down on the sources of pollutants and emissions in our environment. There is a lot we can do to undo, but it won't matter if we continue to do the things that just continue the same old business line. We're speaking with Vanessa Fagens-Turner. She's the new executive director of Environmental Advocates New York. Well, you do have action priorities, I see here, from your website, which is eany.org. You're calling on state elected leaders to, number one, create a dedicated climate and community protection fund. What's that all about? This is all about ensuring that the cost and burden of paying for the changes we need to secure our environment and our climate don't fall to taxpayers and individual households. This is about ensuring that polluters pay for their disproportionate impact on the climate and environment. Those who are dumping chemicals into our water system, those who are using tons of dirty energy to power their businesses, they should pay more than those of us who have regular households and who are going about lives without doing undue harm. And that means that there are a number of policy mechanisms and a lot of policies that can be implemented to ensure more money comes from those polluting to support not only cleanup, but also building new energy. Yeah, and then there's also the other interior effects, right? If there's polluting, let's take PFAS chemicals. There's the pollution and the cleanup, but then there's all the damages to the human beings and their tissue. So what about medical bills? Is that anything in discussion? Or how far do we go in protecting the community and the people and their families when it comes to those who are eventually found responsible for that pollution? You're raising a critical point, which is that the harm done by irresponsible environmental action goes well beyond environmental harm. It has a very large human cost. Public health, whether it is smoggy, polluted air, which increases asthma rates in our inner cities and particularly in our poorest communities, also goes along with the internal troubles that come from ingesting harmful chemicals, plastics, etc. There is a long way to go before we get beyond simply stopping the production and release of harmful chemicals into our basic water supplies and products and ensuring that those who are on the bad end of those practices get sufficient support to compensate for the harm done to them. That's Vanessa Fagens-Turner, Executive Director of Environmental Advocates, New York.
You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. The New York State Department of Health and the State Office for the Aging drafted a master plan for aging and are holding a series of town halls across the state to discuss the plan. The Legislative Gazette's Pat Bradley reports on a recent session in Plattsburgh. The meeting at Clinton Community College was intended to gather input on the plan that looks to assure access to programs and services for aging New Yorkers and people with disabilities by creating public-private collaborations. Master Plan for Aging Chair and Department of Health Office of Aging and Long-Term Care Deputy Commissioner Adam Herbst calls the state plan ambitious and unique. We need to ensure that the services the supports, and all the care that we provide in New York to New Yorkers with disabilities are addressed in our plan to facilitate them to continue to thrive and age in New York. Herbst added ageism, discrimination, and ableism are real problems that undermine aging New Yorkers. We want to do what is needed to ensure that we in the state of New York have the resources to continue to provide those supports and services and work together at the state level, at the local level, to be coordinated as a whole so that we can provide for all the different communities to ensure that people can age with dignity and independence. Master Plan for Aging Vice Chair and New York State Office for the Aging Director Greg Olson noted that the majority of older New Yorkers are active and healthy, the top givers to charities, the number one volunteer group, the largest entrepreneur group, and a huge tourism block. He says the master plan recognizes that service needs cannot be structured in a cookie-cutter fashion. How do we better engage individuals? How can we help folks if they want to go back to work or they want to volunteer, be civically engaged? Or how do we combat social isolation? How do we provide better transportation to get people together, looking at people holistically, not just from a deficits perspective? Association on Aging in the state of New York, Executive Director Becky Preeby says as the plan is finalized, past problems should be assessed. I think the master plan really needs to take a look at recommendations and policies that were either piloted with success and then funding went away or never implemented because of the resource issue. And I think when you talk about the overall state budget, it's imperative to look at the fact that we know about the aging population, we know they're 43% of the tax base, Yet the New York State Office for the Aging budget is less than 1% of the overall state budget. And I think when you look back at Assembly and Senate hearings over the course of the past 10 years, you have thousands of hours of individuals that testified not only about aging services, but also about disability services. AARP New York Director of Government Affairs and Advocacy David McNally, a resident of Essex County, advocated that concerns of family caregivers be included in the master plan. The unpaid, informal family caregiver is the backbone to all of this long-term care. And I, I so appreciate the opportunity and the direction and the passion for all this. But in the end, if there's not the resources behind it to make seismic change in what we do here, then what's the point? The Master Plan for Aging was established in November 2022 under an executive order issued by Governor Kathy Hochul. Adoption of a final plan is targeted in 2025. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Pat Bradley.
listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Asylum seekers by the thousands have arrived in New York City and been sent to a number of upstate localities, prompting lawsuits and states of emergency. The latest group arrived this week in the Schenectady County town of Rotterdam. The Legislative Gazette's Dave Lucas was there and filed this report. Thursday morning, the motel parking lot was cordoned off with yellow chains. Several security guards were stationed at the entrance, while others watched the perimeter. Alexander Zuniga and Vanessa Encarnacion arrived in the U.S. two days ago, telling WAMC they left their children behind in Ecuador. We came country by country through Colombia, Panama, the jungle, a mountain of obstacles and difficulties, but we finally made it here. We came illegally in search of something better for us and our children. They say they're looking for work and didn't come here to harm anyone. They speak little English, and all they want is a better life. Town officials say at least three buses carrying migrants, including women and children, began to arrive under heavy security late Tuesday night at the Super 8 Motel on Carmen Road, filling 85 out of 100 rooms several hours after guests, including low-income residents being sheltered by Montgomery County, were evicted from the motel on the pretense that the facility would be shut down for one year. Another bus arrived Wednesday night and more are expected soon. Angela Castrillo Villachez is with the New York Immigration Coalition. We got notification of the Rotterdam folks about two days ago. We know that we have received families, which is a first. Um, New York City hasn't sent families anywhere else. Um, it's been mainly single men and women. Um, we ended up getting a few couples, married couples, towards the end of June, but this is the first time that we are receiving children. Um, so we've got children, we've got people who are pregnant as well um, that are on, um, that are in Rotterdam currently. Schenectady County Manager Rory Fluman says the county doesn't have any jurisdiction, saying immigration is up to the federal government. State Assemblyman Angelo Santa Barbara says New York City Mayor Eric Adams, a fellow Democrat, is thoughtlessly sending the migrants to town. Completely disregarding the fact that there was individuals already residing uh, at that location, and these are individuals that are struggling with poverty themselves, and now they were forced out with almost no notice, and now they're displaced in our community. I, I, I'm absolutely outraged by what transpired. Uh, it's it's incomprehensible that this decision was made without any consultation or coordination with local representatives. Democratic Capital Region Congressman Paul Tonko agrees. The callousness shown towards these individuals by Mayor Adams and the motel is beyond belief. This is not about migrants. It's about basic human decency and respect. That we were only informed of these actions by the mayor's office after the fact makes them even more egregious. Santa Barbara says his office is trying to locate the displaced motel residents to offer assistance. He's calling for open dialogue and cooperation between federal, state, and local authorities. In a letter addressed to State Attorney General Letitia James, Santa Barbara seeks immediate intervention to investigate the legality of the evictions. He says James's office is determining whether they can proceed with an investigation. The AG did not reply to a request for comment. 
defending the policy of busing migrants out of New York City, an Adams spokesperson tells WAMC the city is out of space after accepting 90,000 asylum seekers in recent weeks and months. Castrillo Villages says the coalition is working with Doc2Go, the company that has a contract with New York City to bus individuals out of the Big Apple. They want to have, you know, a regular life. They want to work. They want to work. They want to buy houses. They want to, um, you know, really make our communities fruitful. Um, they're here to, you know, set up a life in the same way that a lot of us have moved in or out of um, the capital region to. Um, so, again, right, a lot of um, the media that has come out that has been really negative, I think, um, forgets that missing piece is that a lot of the folks that are arriving are folks that want to set up lives here in the capital region, and we should be doing the most that we can to make that possible for them. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Dave Lucas. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. The long-stalled redevelopment of the former Beechnut factory facility in Canajoharie along the New York State Thruway is taking a step forward. The Legislative Gazette's Alexander Babby with more. The former Beechnut factory in Canajoharie has been empty for over a decade. Now, a combined residential and business space is taking its place as part of a complex, including marijuana growery E29 Labs. Speaking at the plant Monday, Montgomery County Executive Matt Ossenfort says cannabis is just one part of the redevelopment plans. The excitement is, is not just specifically about cannabis. The excitement is that, A, these are really good-paying jobs with uh, uh, an employer who has a record of treating his employees very well. And they're the types of jobs that young people want to do. Austin Fort says $1 million in state funding is being sought to complete the project. With grant funding obtained through New York State and National Grid, we've worked to ensure that this site will once again be a significant economic engine creating jobs and tax revenue. The site's incredible visibility, as you can see right next to the thruway, uh, requires us to be thoughtful and deliberate when it comes to redevelopment. Ken Rose of the County Business Development Office says the plans will open up the area. What it's going to incorporate is uh, a walking trail down along the Kanjahari Creek to the uh, Kanjahari waterfront. And then what you see here is open space that will most likely be portions of that would be uh, deeded back to the village of Kanjahari. And then the other drawings you see here, we're incorporating a mixed-use type development. Uh, with residential and commercial. Rose added the commercial development will also influence housing plans on site. It's really going to depend whether it's 40 units or, or 100 units. Um, obviously, if uh, exit if E29 Labs comes on, on board, there's going to be a lot of, uh, there's going to be a younger demographic work in there that's going to look for a certain type of, of housing stock right now that the village of Kanjahari doesn't have. So our end goal is to not only have them work here, but to also, also live here. Although the former factory, built in 1900, is being demolished, Austin Fort says first consideration was given to renovation, but it proved unviable. Rose says demolition should be done by winter. We received a $6.5 million Restore New York grant on this. The overall project demolition cost for both sides is going to come in a range of $10 million. Uh, so that, you know, the, the county is into it for 
3.5 million dollars and then we've had great partnerships with the with the village of Kanjahari. Austin Fort says an ammonia leak set the schedule back by a few weeks. Rose says getting necessary cannabis licenses is key to the redevelopment plans. Once that goes in place, uh, E29 Labs is set to submit an application and we're extremely optimistic that hopefully they'll be one of the first ones that are funded through that licensing process. So uh, we're just waiting on a state on that. That growing facility will go in on the backside of the property on 19 acres across the Canajahari Creek behind the current Beechnut site. Eddie Watt, clerk of the nearby village of Nelliston, says reusing the site continues the legacy of Beechnut philanthropy. There's an opportunity to create something that's going to be just as long-lasting, just as impactful, and I think it's very exciting that the people of the village get to participate in that, and uh, again, you know, thank you to everybody who's participated in that so far. Austin Fort acknowledges there is some uncertainty given the bumpy rollout of New York's legal marijuana industry. We haven't had assurances. I think the uh, rollout of um, recreational cannabis has had its bumps in the road to say it nicely. I think we're eagerly anticipating it. No matter what happens, Austin Fort says, the site will still see use. Even if it didn't go well or something was wrong, you still have a site here with the visibility, the traffic, all the infrastructure in the world. There's been a lot of interest. Rose says planners are taking into account the potential impact on existing nearby businesses. We are looking at a mix of commercial and residential. Uh, one of the things we've been very cognizant of is that any type of commercial that we entice to the site will not compete with any of these downtown businesses. The total size of the E29 growing facility is projected at more than 160,000 square feet. E29 did not speak at the event. You can see pictures of the site at WAMC.org. In Kanajahari, I'm Alexander Babby. That about does it for this week's show. The Legislative Gazette is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. You can listen to the Legislative Gazette anytime at wamcpodcast.org or anywhere you get your podcast. Look for program number 2329. And join us again next week at this same time. For more news on New York State government and politics, for the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustino.